0: Greetings. I'm Keith Klein, the host of the Venture Fizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. For the 78th episode of our podcast, I interviewed Spencer Lazar, who is a partner at General Catalyst in New York City. Spencer has several years of experience as a venture capitalist. He previously held investment roles at Excel and Insight Venture Partners. At General Catalyst, he helped open their office in New York, and his current portfolio includes companies like Bowery, ClassPass, Funbox, Giphy, Lemonade, and others. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics like his passion for photographing street art, Spencer's background, including some interesting details from his time at Harvard as a resident of Kirkland House over the same period of time that Facebook was getting started, lessons learned from co-founding his own startup spontaneously, an early iOS based mobile calendar, what he is targeting in terms of investments at General Catalyst, common pitfalls for companies trying to scale, the current vibe of the New York tech ecosystem, plus a lot more. Okay, quick side note. Are you expanding your company and growing your team in New York? If the answer is yes, then you need to check out our biz pages. It's an employment branding solution, which helps you connect with and hire amazing talent in the New York tech ecosystem. If you're interested in learning more, send an email to info at com and we'll get you all the details. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Spencer. Spencer, thanks for joining us. Great to be here. Thanks for having me, Keith. So I was really excited to talk to you and I love doing research and kind of going deep in terms of a person, not only their professional history, but also kind of things they like to do outside of work. And the thing that I noticed about you is you have this interesting hobby where you love to take photographs of street art. So I wanted to talk to you, like, like how did you fall in love with that? And then what's kind of like the most interesting spot that you found or one or two that sure. are your favorites?
1: So it's funny. This is uh, definitely one of my real passions in the world. And um, it's actually something that I I do talk a little bit about uh, publicly. I definitely post a lot publicly, um, my photos, but um, it's actually a fun opportunity to, to share what, what the passion's all about. So, um, street art to me is uh, something that I've been photographing for about 15 years. Um, and I fell into it, actually, um, while I was traveling abroad uh, in Spain. Um, and I realized that it's, um, I mean, at the most fundamental level, street art is about noticing. Uh, t- taking pictures of it. It's about noticing. It's not just about billboards. Um, it's about small stickers, figurines that people put up all over the place. And, and I don't know why, but I have a uh, sort of sixth sense for where people will put things and where they will be. And maybe it's just because I've been shooting it for so long. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I walk around cities. And uh, in particular, when I was walking around um, uh, Bilbao and Spain and, and Madrid, Barcelona, um, and it takes me to places that I would not normally go mm-hmm. because it's usually the grungier areas, it's sort of the more artistic areas, it's the places that are still very much on the come. And so when, you, when, I, when I think about going to a place like De Novo, I, instead of just going to the equivalent of the Eiffel Tower or you know, going to see some fancy park, you know, everyone's already photographed. Yeah. Yeah. It'll take me to, you know, some other place that I, that I haven't been. And so for me, it's actually a pretty meditative experience and I'll walk around the city. I used to do it a little more when I, when I didn't have a family, but um, I do it pretty much every weekend for an hour or two and just sort of notice, you know, notice the little, you know, cracks and differences in paint colors and stuff like that. And in picking up those, usually there are other people who are creative that, want to find ways to interact with the world around them. And they do that through paint and stickers and different types of fun things. And I actually put up stuff myself, um, you know, every once in a while. Very cool. Yeah. 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 Interesting hobby. Super fun. Super fun hobby.
0: Let's go way back. Where did you grow up? What did your parents do for work?
1: Sure. Um, so grew up in Chicago, uh, grew up on the South side of Chicago, which is sort of in more recent years become more famous because I grew up on the university of Chicago campus where Barack Obama sort of emerged and was a community leader. And, um, sort of grew up while he was teaching at the university and and getting into politics. And so that was kind of the the, um, really interesting melting pot of super South Side, in some cases uh, Northwest Indiana, um, uh, university faculty, people from the far suburbs of Chicago, all culminating in this really intellectual community that the University of Chicago brings together. Um, And the school that I went to actually used to be affiliated officially with the university and it basically was, uh, it was called a lab school and they actually did like experiments on kids around childhood development and sort of psychological, uh, neurological development with kids. And, and that was the environment that we got brought up in, um, where, you know, K to 12, we were with, um, you know, a lot of faculty kids, uh, uh, the kids of the faculty university, but just this really interesting racially, uh, socioeconomically, um, and, uh, maybe a little less politically diverse community. It was really fun. My parents weren't affiliated with the university, but my dad was a neurologist uh, and my mom was a jeweler. Wow. So I had this like, very different you know, right brain, left brain type of upbringing, um, which probably is, has something to do with my mom and, and my passion for street art and my dad um, and some of the more structured elements of, of how I've developed uh, my thinking.
0: And what were you like as a kid? Like, were you like, so you, you went on to study economics at Harvard. Yeah. So, you know, what were you like as a kid? And then what brought you to, to Cambridge, Massachusetts?
1: Uh, as a kid, I was, um, I was always really artistic. Um, so I made furniture. I, you know, was always, you know, making something. Uh, I made furniture. I was drawing, painting. A bunch of other things, um, but always loved making things. And I literally grew up like in my mom's jewelry studio, you know, making necklaces and, you know, rings and stuff That's with cool. her. Um, so that was one part of it. Um, you know, always also very athletic. Um, I spent a lot of time in the woods, uh, mostly in my high school years. Um, I spent a lot of time backpacking, rock climbing, ice climbing, um, which I think was um, looking back, I haven't done enough of that recently, but just the experience of, being fully unplugged and being more or less alone, um, you know, I was in small groups, but also alone um, is something that we don't do enough of now. Um, But that was a sort of another foundational element of of what I did. Um, And then the other sort of cornerstone of my upbringing is I did a lot of debate. Mm. So I did um, a lot of the biggest community where I was growing up as Model UN, so I did that. Um, quite a bit, and it was a big part of the people who I surrounded myself uh, with were basically people who were really interested in the world and would come together to debate the big, sort of political, um, socio, uh, socio-political issues of the day. And um, what brought me to Harvard to study economics was really the kind of um, the the desire to understand how people make decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, And I think um, over the course of the past 15, 20 years, the field of economics has shifted more towards behavioral psychology and um, behavioral economics is something that people spend a lot of time on. Mm -hmm. Um, But the basic study that I was looking at was how can you influence people uh, by changing prices, by changing options, by um, effectively changing user interfaces as well Mm -hmm. to make decisions that are better for them than maybe they would have otherwise. Right. And so, um, probably you know the the most impactful um, class that I ever took in school was a a, a class actually by a visiting professor um, on information economics, and it was basically around how people make decisions in search, how people make decisions in you know price comparison stuff like that, mm-hmm. and um, and that frankly is you know a lot of what we do in the in the venture business is try to get a lead on how we help people make better decisions, how we can identify products that are, uh, you know, sort of offer breakthrough user experiences um, and get people to, again, do things that maybe they didn't think were possible before. Um, And and that's, you know, I I sort of found myself working with a lot of entrepreneurs on campus. And um, the the thing that I could have never predicted um, was that I was at school right in the middle of this... um, Incredible, but also um, uh, now um, kind of unfathomable and unwieldy uh, explosion of a company called Facebook.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: I um, I was at Harvard from 2003 until 2007. Um, so I was in the same dorm as the uh, Facebook folks when they um, sort of got things going. And what? You that, were? Yep, yep. Wow. Same dorm, uh, Kirkland House, and it had. You know, people talk about you know. Obviously, there's a social network uh, that that has sort of popularized a lot of the um, energy that 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 um, went on there and was part of uh, now part of the broader culture. I um, actually saw that there's maybe a sequel to that movie. That, oh, that oh, that's right. So when done.
0: you watch the movie, where yeah. you're like, yeah, that's not really what happened, because obviously you know, they really dramatize it.
1: Yeah, I think the interpersonal stuff they they dramatize quite a bit. But what what I I think in some respects they under dramatize is the the it's very rare to see a social phenomenon truly taking off um, that is you know ultimately captivating the country and then the world right from the very, very beginning? And what I would say is what those folks were able to do at the beginning was assemble um, many of the smartest kids in the class join them in that pursuit as sort of the sparks started to fly mm-hmm. and then the other thing which I think is reported a little bit less is there was a um, another group of entrepreneurs that emerged from you know plus or minus a couple of years in that cohort mm-hmm. that were exceptionally bright and went on to start companies of their own and there were a lot of factors that caused that level of entrepreneurship as well. You know the economy wound up, wound up tanking, and people right. stopped going into banking, consulting, a bunch of other things. Mm-hmm. Um, but they uh, went on to um, start companies like LearnVest and Birchbox and Blue Apron, and you know I could go on a bunch, a bunch of others, and um, and and not just start companies, but then become product, uh, technology, and you know other forms of leadership in, in very notable businesses. And I do think that a lot of that was inspired by the pace of development, the energy that came from seeing the journey of those people really quickly, um, you know, their move to Silicon Valley, while I think not maybe the best for Boston, um, uh, in some ways I think spoke to like, they just went for it. They just sort of took the leap. Yeah. Um, and I think that was really inspiring and frankly, probably also inspiring to me and, and some of my peers who wound up getting into the venture business, because, you know, we saw that taking off and, um, you know, we thought, geez, is there a way we could help and support entrepreneurs like the people we knew go on and do some of the things that we thought they were capable of going on? And so that's kind of, it was an undeniable inspiration to a lot of people. Um, certainly, again, some dramatized elements, but but really, really exciting.
0: And, and then you actually um, spent some time working at a startup while you are at Harvard, too. School Motion, yeah. was it? Yeah, guy?
1: yeah. So... It's interesting. Back then, it feels like people didn't really talk about them as startups as much. <laughs> I mean, it certainly wasn't. Uh, I used to joke about this with with people while I was on campus um, that you know that at the time there was sort of like a different career tracks that somebody would go on. Right? You'd be pre med. You'd be pre law. You maybe would be um, think about yourself as becoming a teacher or um, some some other high calling. Um, not a lot of people thought about a career in startups. It was f- still for kind of misfits, rebels, you know, the, the famous um, uh, quote there uh, that Steve Jobs references. Um, but at the time, it wasn't a career track. And so what I would say is I, I joined a friend who was exploring what, sorts of experiences you could build for, at the time, the iPod, which was, you know, controlled by a click wheel, had a color screen that was small as pre-iPhone. And we were trying to figure out what was going to happen on the, basically on the phone, but the predecessor was the iPod. Mm -hmm. So we built, um, everything from trading cards that you would download because you would basically download these packs of, um, of, of photos and you would scroll through them really quickly and it would sort of animate them in a way that the, it wasn't even intended to do, Right. Um, we made trading cards, we made games, we made um, little flipbooks for kids that they would uh, play with with their parents. And that actually turned into a, a much bigger company here, which basically um, built uh, a platform, and it's still here, they're still running, um, that enabled people to build presentations uh, in actually enterprise settings for effectively sales, farm sales, um, car sales, like a bunch of different things. But it was actually sort of play and, um, and and really sort of toys. People talk about like a lot of the f- the future starts off looking like a toy. Mm-hmm. We were building toys at the time. Right. And it was a room of four or five people and, and trying to figure out what what we could do with it.
0: Very interesting. Now, yeah. coming out of school, yeah. you started working as an investor in venture capital. Yeah. So, so how did that all come together straight out of school? Because, you know, there's some people it happens, but most people it kind of happens later or after B school. At, at the time,
1: it was relatively fringe thing to do. Mm -hmm. Um, There was a, there's a firm, it's now a much more known firm and a very, very great firm called insight where I went to go work. Um, They hired one or two people from Harvard a year and they hired probably six or seven people right out of college. Mm -hmm. And honestly to call it an investing job would be generous. (laughs) It was a, it was, you know, the job was here's a phone and a computer come up with ideas that you think are interesting, call the CEOs of those companies and basically learn as much about them as you possibly can and come back to us if you think it's an interesting opportunity. But, you know, they
0: uh, sent you out into the world. Yeah. It was like, like, here's a phone.
1: Yeah. It was, here's, you know, and they, they, they now do a lot more training. They did some training then, but really it was, um, a trial by fire type of dynamic, you know, get smart kids that we don't have to pay crazy amounts of money, uh, Certainly well paid, but um, we can hire a lot more of them than hiring. You could hire maybe two of them for every MBA that you could hire, right. as an example. Yeah. And we'll hire a class of them, and whoever survives, we'll keep and promote through the organization. And so I, I kind of got lucky because I was, again, in this startup environment um, that was going on around the time that Facebook was started. And, you know, how do you get more exposure to these? How do you work with more companies at once? Um, how do you? Uh, if you're a very curious person and think you want exposure to a broader range of industries, how could you do that? Um, If you um, believe that you um, maybe aren't necessarily, you don't have operational DNA, you may not be a great CEO yourself, you know, what is a way that you can be a point of leverage in the ecosystem um, and drive change in the world? Um, And so these guys sort of we're the only venture firm that was recruiting at school, and I thought, we'll give it a shot. And I was recruited by a phenomenal, phenomenal person who's probably hired 150-plus people that have now worked at Insight, but have gone on and actually are populate a lot of the venture firms in the country because it's a great recruiting ground for, for VCs. Um, and uh, so it was not super deliberate um, because there weren't a lot of other ways to do it. Um, it wasn't like I had five options. It was one. And I got lucky, frankly, that they took a shot on me and, um, really fun, really fun.
0: And, and, you know, during this time was the financial meltdown. Yes. So you were really earning your stripes Uh. in just coming out of school and figuring it out. But all of a sudden the the market tanks. So I guess that could have been like a good, if you could survive during that time, then like, uh, like you couldn't get worse worst of times. So,
1: well, it was the thing about that time that, um, that's definitely true. It was a meltdown, but it was also the same year the iPhone launched. Mm -hmm. Um, so it was sort of the best of times and the worst of times at the same time, Sure, (laughs) you know, if you think about it. And so it was a very, um, frankly, it was a time that we, we probably will see again, but is almost like a once in a decade moment in the, in the technology business where new distribution channels open up massively. And the thing that happened at the same time was actually um, a second thing happened, which was, uh, which was really incredible, which was that Facebook had opened up its platform for third party developers. And sure. so you sort of had a once in a, le- a decade moment Happened twice mm-hmm. um, in a very short period of time, which actually, as an investor, you know, sparked much of um, the next decade of, of innovation in terms of you know how companies would would find customers, and um, so I actually think about it as an incredible opportunity, um, despite some of the the scariness in the market. And then the other thing that happened in that crisis was that you know people both lost trust in the financial institutions, uh, of the day. And also those institutions weren't hiring the way that they had been before. So you combine that with the incredible influx of talent that went into the, into the venture business at the time. And it was probably the best time to start, you know, as an investor, um, or potentially even as a founder, um, that we've seen in, um, you know, in the last decade.
0: Yeah. I mean, if you look at a lot of the companies that have scaled, they were started doing that. Yeah,
1: exactly. So it was, it was a phenomenal time to start.
0: Now from insight, you went on and actually moved over to London. I moved to London. Yeah. Um, it was kind of
1: crazy. Um, not crazy to work for Excel. They're, they're a great firm and I'm very uh, friendly with them still, but I didn't know anybody in London. I literally got off the plane and it's funny there. I don't, I can't remember what, uh, if it's called this on, on all platforms, but you know, an, an Apple, which is the device that I've been using basically, um, for the last 10 years or more, uh, you know, there's their favorites section on your phone. And it's a, it's funny to call it your favorites because it sort of presumes you have favorites. And like when I got off the phone, the plane in London, I had literally no favorites in London, <laughs> like none, zero. There wasn't like a person I could call that would, you know, I could get together with at all, like right, even right, remotely. Right. Um, So it was crazy for me um, as a pretty social person was just saying, you know what, I'm going to see if I can figure this out. I'm going to see if I can go there and be by myself, um, learn how to live by myself, um, you know, in a way that I hadn't before. I'd lived with friends prior to that. Mm -hmm. Um, And you know, frankly, navigate not just one country, but the whole, you know, European continent, which you kind of have to do in the venture business, especially at that time when the European venture community was much smaller. Right. Um, you just had to be on a new a plane to a new country every week to see uh, opportunities. So I did that. I was 24, and um, I think I grew up more in that year or two than probably I had in, in, in any other period of my life. You
0: know, um, I know it's probably changed a lot yeah. since you know, you move back. But what was the, uh, you know, like the startup world like over in London compared to, you know, what you had witnessed in the U.S.? Well, you mentioned...
1: So I actually don't even... um, I don't remember if this was due to the financial crisis, but um, the short answer is it's small. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the, the startup community in London when I was there was super small. So the statistic... I didn't read this. Somebody said this to me a few years ago. But in 2009, I believe, there was $70 million invested in U.K. startups, Wow, which is nothing. nothing. I mean, there's like, right. you know, that's like half of a round. Somebody down become, the street,
0: yeah, just yeah. raised, yeah, like.
1: Okay. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So so it was like tiny. But, it, you know, even assume that it was a couple hundred million. It was tiny, tiny, tiny. Right. Um, and that, again, may have been due to some of the macro factors that were going on there. And then that same person told me that I think it was 2014, that number was like 1.7 billion or, you know, so um, orders of magnitude, I'm probably right that it was tiny. And that was one of the reasons why we had to be on a plane to Portugal, Spain, Italy, you know, France, um, the Nordics very regularly. Um, But I think what you found in London was you found, frankly, a lot of the things you have in New York. You found culture. You found fashion. You found... Um, an ad complex, which, you know, there, there is clearly here. You had financial services industry, which is, you know, arguably second to none, you know, but certainly on par with a New York or Hong Kong. Um, and so, you know, I think you had a lot of core ingredients for what, what would become the world that we have today, Mm -hmm. but definitely underdog, definitely small. Um, and, and also, um, uh, you had an ecosystem that had to deal with trying to build... You know, in the U.S., we we take for granted that we're 50 states that act like one market. And I think in the U.K., where I lived, um, that, you know, even though you have all these countries which are kind of state-like, mm-hmm. it acts absolutely as different markets. And so what you had there was, you know, a lot of ingenuity and founders and trying to create businesses that could scale across mm-hmm. the continent. Um, but... Uh, yeah, what a ride. That was really fun.
0: Yeah, I bet. I mean, that's, that's a bold move. 24 years old, just go move to another country and have no contacts and figure it out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Then back to, to New York and you had your own startup. Yeah. So what's uh, what prompted the decision there and what did you do? So it's
1: interesting. Um, you know, I, I, I ran a startup for a few years. It was, I often describe it as an unremarkable company. Like it's basically not even, uh, you know... It, my biggest regret with my company, frankly, was that I didn't, I feel like I didn't learn enough. You know, failure is fine, but you want to learn as much as you can from from, um, from those experiences. And I ran a company that um, was in an area that I actually had spent some time exploring when I was at Harvard, uh, which was basically in the calendar space, so um, and broadly in sort of productivity. Um, and you know, I had this long fascination with how we could help people do more with their time. And you know, it's the scarcest resource that we have. And the tools in uh, 2004, when I first started exploring it, and 2009 um, were not much better. I mean, we had Google Calendar, but like there wasn't really a lot uh, there. And then we had these new devices in our pockets um, with you know uh, smartphones. And they were even dumber than the web. I mean, you couldn't even, at the time, touch an entry on your calendar and have it do anything. It right. was just like a representation of your calendar. So our, our question was, could we do better? And the truth of the matter is we built some stuff that was interesting, but it never gained much, uh, adoption in the market. And, you know, the company was not more than eight or 10 people, you know, it was a small business, frankly, um, raised a little bit of money, uh, wound up actually giving half of it back to our investors, which is not something you see, um, very often. And, um, and it was unsuccessful, but I learned a lot about, um, the, the few things that I learned a lot about, I learned a lot about founder dynamics. I learned a lot about, um, how hard it is to make something that people want Mm -hmm. and how hard it is to, um, uh, sort of compete in, in what is already a very competitive market and, and, you know, hiring and some of the other sort of basic things. But, you know, we, we weren't unsuccessful. So, uh, it was, but, but through that, Um, Actually, one of the investors in my company was a a former partner of mine at Excel. Um, And he joined GC about six months before I did and had a long relationship with the firm uh, from the Excel days and basically uh, talked to me about whether I was interested in getting back in in the venture business. And um, he talked a little bit about their aspirations here in New York. And I thought there was a really cool opportunity to um, uh, as I was saying to you before we sat down, sort of stand on the shoulders of giants a little bit, um, take, a, take um, some of the great work that the founders and, and uh, managing partners of our firm had done to pick great companies, not just in New York, but more broadly, but in New York alone, companies like Oscar and Warby and um, a number of others, and try to help formalize our practice here. And it was sort of a nice combination of an entrepreneurial experience, similar to what I had before, um, in my in my company, um, and a you know an opportunity to learn from real mentors and um, you know people who had kind of been to the mountaintop of venture before. Um, so that was sort of the the origin story of my of my coming to GC, and um, I still work with you know all those people today, and it's it's a, a real treat.
0: Yeah, I mean, the General Catalyst, obviously, they've had an incredible impact on the Boston tech scene uh, with companies like HubSpot and yeah. Demandware and several, several others. Um, but it's been interesting to see how they've just, uh, you know, grown to being one of the leading VCs in the country, mm-hmm. you know, great reputation in the Valley, uh, LA, here in New York. Yeah. And then I was looking at some of the prior investments, the, the exits here in New York, and it was like earlier of the ecosystem here, like... Uh, Group me mm-hmm. uh, hot potato yeah, yeah, yeah. uh tremor video, yeah. you know, so those are some of the you know earlier foundation companies of what you know made the New York tech ecosystem great, but then obviously, the portfolio of investments now is like you know just amazing
1: yeah it's been a it's been a great ride
0: and and you were the person that actually helped launch this office, like you were actually the person that launched this office, correct,
1: yeah, I mean the way I sort of think about it is i <laughs> There's no way I could have done this uh, or, or, frankly, even been the person on the ground without, any, uh, w- without the broader engagement of a number of very, very key people. Um, I was the, the person on the ground for GC here. Um, and very quickly, really within a matter of weeks or months, um, maybe even days, uh, my colleague Peter, who I know you know, um, basically graduated from Harvard and joined, uh, me here to, to, to be sort of my day-to-day partner in making this, making this work. Um, but you know, what is, what does that mean? It means that, you know, we had people from all of our offices flying here all the time to try to make this successful. And so while I was the, the person day-to-day, you know, trying to make it happen, um, on the ground, it was, you know, it's obviously a team effort and that's kind of how i I've, I've lived it.
0: And General Catalyst, so last year, you announced your ninth fund. Yeah. So you're investing out of a $1.375 billion fund, which is, uh, you know, again, just amazing. Uh, so what's the like typical size of investments that General Catalyst makes?
1: So typical is um, a little bit hard to describe because we've evolved as a firm quite a bit. Um, but at the core of what we do, um, there are three types of investments. Um, We make early-stage investments in companies, um, which is sort of traditional venture capital. Um, And then we make sort of expansion-stage investments, which you would think of as kind of the Series C, Series D uh, stage investment. And then we make uh, growth investments. And the growth investments, um, there's a particular structure that we have there that's pretty unique. Um, But it's, it's it's more akin to traditional growth equity, where we're investing, you know, to buy thirty to sixty percent of a company, um, and are very very actively involved with those businesses where they typically haven't raised capital before. Mm-hmm. So, in each of those buckets, in the venture business, um, in the traditional venture business, you know we will do, um, you know, often two and a half to ten million dollar first check into a business. Um, and then in the, or, you know, potentially more in the expansion business, we'll do sort of 20 to $50 million checks typically. And then in the XIR growth business, um, we'll do 25 to hundred million dollar checks. Um, but quite a range. And we have teams that are focused on each of those areas. Um, uh, and you know, um, we are, we you know, we'll, we'll even do via rough draft, which Peter runs with a, a few colleagues of ours, we'll even write checks as small as twenty five dollars to $100,000 actually to help people launch their businesses right out of universities. Um, and so it's, um, we think about the firm as sort of the full life cycle investor from when you have an idea through really taking a company public. And we'd like to be able to be um, the lead or the co-lead of you know, almost every round, uh, along the way, potentially some of these late private rounds, uh, we wouldn't, we wouldn't do just cause they're, you know, could be a billion dollars of private capital. Um, and that's not a check that we would, we would do, but, um, yeah, up until that point, consider us, uh, consider us a lead.
0: And I also think, um, you know, when you guys started rough draft, like that was, I, I know a couple of the other firms have similar things, but yeah. that, that was kind of like first of its kind. And it's something that I probably want to take a look at at some point, but the, you know, you select investors from you know different campuses in different regions, uh, and the people that have kind of gone through their investment cycle, what they've gone off to do yeah, is it's pretty like, amazing. The alumni network is yeah, it's pretty, pretty amazing. Pretty awesome.
1: Yeah, it's pretty amazing. I mean Rough Draft is a um, really, really interesting vehicle for us to first and foremost, again, support entrepreneurs at the earliest, earliest stages where They may not feel like they have the personal resources to take a summer off of um, uh, school, or maybe even a year off of school, um, because of the the financial hardship that would impose, and give them the financial flexibility to to take a bet on themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's the first thing. The second thing is it's a really interesting place for us to learn about what young people with really fresh perspectives on the world think is interesting, and the way um, they you know, the challenges that they have and the way that they use technology, really, really interesting place to inform our whole business, right? It's not just what we invest in at the at the earliest of stages. So it's been fascinating. And Peter, Denali, and um, and Natalie, who lead it day to day, have just done an amazing, amazing job. But as you point out, it's not just the investments that they make. It's what, you know, the investors who are all students uh, when they're in the program go on to do. Um much like, uh, the insight alumni that I referenced before. I mean, they're in tons of venture firms and also companies, you know, great companies, they get jobs cause some of them do it and they think, you know, I'd love to do that startup thing.
0: Yeah, totally. So now, let's talk about, you know, your particular area of focus. So what's, um, you know, what are you generally targeting? Uh, like general cast invests broad. Yeah. Like what, what are you looking for generally, uh, in terms of startups and like, like when you evaluate an opportunity, like what, what's the criteria you use to decide whether or not to invest? So um, I think there's sort of
1: two different streams there. So one is um, kind of across verticals, what are the things that I look for? And then there's sort of, are there verticals in particular that I'm focused on or, or particularly interested in? Um, I think on the horizontal point of, of just broad filters, um, I think increasingly the, the thing that I'm focused on is, do I believe that spending... Uh, our time as a firm and resources um, would help drive really significant changes in the world that I think are important. Mm -hmm. And, you know, hopefully with that, you know, is the opportunity to do that significant enough to drive real returns for our firm. So I look at something and I think, you know, for me personally, because the question was me personally, do I, um, you know, if somebody was pitching a, um, a company that was a you know doing um, real money gaming, I, other people might do that, but that's not something that I think is a great use of time, and I don't want to spend my, my sort of cycles working on that problem. Right. Um, or frankly, even regular gaming, you know, just for recreational fun. Mm-hmm. Nothing wrong with that stuff, and you can make tremendous amounts of money, and we have as a firm. For me personally, I'm not as drawn to that. So the first is like, do I think the mission and sort of the, the broader ambition is significant enough that it's worth our time in my cycle specifically? And then within that, I'm really looking for a business that um, has a way to drive um, in, an increasingly um, uh, sort of frustrating moat or, or set of advantages relative to the competition. Um, and that could come from a variety of different things, from brand regulation, network effects, um, uh, from users or data, um, and much more, um, but but I'm looking for that, um, and then uh, vertically, what I care a lot about is um, I care a lot about um, helping uh, underserved sort of communities and populations. Um, so, um, you know, where that showed up in my work is. Um, companies like Merlin, which is focused on, you know, providing uh, economic opportunity and jobs to blue-collar workers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, at Way Up, we're focused on helping young people launch their careers um, in through Marketplace. Um, with Funbox, it's helping... Small businesses get access to capital that they maybe used to be able to get access to in a pre-financial crisis world, but then where that became much more frustrating, or in many cases, could never get access to capital at all because of the loan sizes that they serve just weren't economically viable for, for banks to serve. Um, and then I'm I'm very much interested in sort of well-being and 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 wellness, um, and so. Um, You know, ClassPass is a a very significant investment of ours and has really sort of taken the world now by storm, trying to organize this um, uh, boutique fitness landscape from a consumer's perspective. Um, So whether that's, you know, rowing, spinning, yoga, Pilates, um, boxing, you know, if you're somebody that wants to live an active life. Um, and uh, wants to do it in a diverse way, not just go to the same place every time. ClassPass is like a great partner for you to figure all that out. And then Bowery, which is a completely different type of company, Um, fascinating fascinating business, uh, is really about how how we can try to re-engineer the food supply chain um, for an increasingly urban population um, so that they can get the highest quality, freshest produce uh, for the lowest cost possible um, and, uh, we're sort of early in the journey, but we're in a really exciting place. We've got two farms up here just outside of New York city and, um, a bunch more on the way. And, um, so there that was about, you know, nutrition. It was about the environment. It's about access to, um, to, to, um, uh, low cost food for a larger population. Um, and so those are some examples of things that get me excited. And I think check a lot of the boxes that I was describing before.
0: Sure. Yeah. yeah, Bowery, we had uh, Irvin Fane as, uh, you know, I interviewed him for our Spark Awards. Oh, yeah, 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 this initiative called the Spark yeah. Awards. What an
1: amazing guy, huh?
0: Like Such an amazing guy. And I just, I think their idea is just fascinating. Like vertical farming, indoor, uh, it's just one of those ideas where you're like, that's, you know, that is going to change the world. If this yeah. company is successful, yes. that will be game changer. Yes, like, yes.
1: Just- and, and frankly, in working with companies like that, or, you know, Lemonade is another one that I work with in the, in the insurance business, It. Every time you see the next company, when you've made those investments, it actually raises the bar. It's really helpful because it keeps you honest about, you know, what's a good use of your time and a good use of the firm's time. Um, So really privileged to get to work with uh, all of those founders.
0: So what's the best way to get on your your radar? Like, you know, first-time founders are looking to raise capital. They have an interesting idea. They think there's the market opportunity. So how do they, you know, get on your radar?
1: Yeah. So the first thing that I would say is... um, I very much appreciate hustle. I mean, that's what insight was all about. And so, cold emailing and all that stuff is completely fine. Um, you know, or DMing or LinkedIn, whatever. Any of any any way that you can get at me in my public presence um, uh, is totally fair game, and, and I and I love. What I would say is, um, you know. Y- in doing so, you should be open-minded that there are some things that are for me and some things that aren't. And so I may pass outright or may forward you on to somebody else on my team that is more relevant. And so there's no reason why an entrepreneur should necessarily know exactly what I'm interested in any given time, but the door is fully open as long as there's sort of the understanding that, you know, I, I may, um, I may pass it along or frankly, just pass outright just to save them time. Um, beyond that, I would say, you know, the, 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 always the, um, sort of classic thing to do in our business is to try to find somebody that has my attention um, and and um, uh, in some ways you could say it's like a qualified, you know, way for um, warm introductions. And, and those tend to come from uh, founders that I work with or we work with as a firm, um, you know, people that I know either that are great service providers or partners of ours, General Catalyst could be lawyers send us a lot of, um, deal flow. Um, but you'd be surprised we'll get deal flow from, you know, real estate brokers, from, you know, insurance providers, like all that stuff is fair game. Mm -hmm. Um, but again, anybody that you think has sort of our, our attention and my attention specifically, um, I'd encourage you to do and just know that, you know, the same way that when, when I started my career, um, you know, I'd sometimes have to call somebody and email somebody and do, you know, multiple times, there's nothing, about you that is causing you to not get through, other than that people are busy and you've got to figure out a slightly more creative way. So I would just keep pushing if if you're having any any issue.
0: Are there any common challenges that you see? Like a lot of the uh, the business that you invest in are uh, you know things where you know acquisition is so key and network effects or you know so yeah. so are there common pitfalls that you see with companies that are trying to scale to that magnitude?
1: I mean, there's so many common challenges. Um, I would say the biggest common challenge um, is talent because that's sort of the fundamental leverage that all companies um, have. And, you know, we're in a super, super competitive market. Um, What I would say, I was just talking to people about this last week. I actually think it's a really interesting time in the market from a talent perspective because I think that maybe a few years ago I would have said, that, Facebook, Google, Apple, Amazon, all those companies, are just this great sort of reverse fire hose, if you will, for, for talent, that they have money, they, the companies are executing insanely well, um, they're actually able to innovate at scale, which for, if you're somebody that cares about impact, matters a lot, um, which many people do. Um, but what's happened you know, over the last year and change, as particularly a lot of the sort of privacy and data issues have emerged at Facebook and Google and, um, and frankly, many other large platforms is that a lot of people who were sort of trained in the industrial ad complex, you know, people that worked on targeting, uh, uh, retargeting people that worked on personalization, people worked on computer vision in the context of advertising now are sort of looking around going, do I really want to do this? But what's what's amazed or what's, what's amazed me and what's, what's so great. And, uh, is that these are people who've been trained in literally the best places in the world for personalization, for, um, artificial intelligence, for, um, you know, a lot of the things that if applied to some of those other areas that are sort of fundamentally good for the world, healthcare, education, financial services, government, you know, a bunch of other areas, um, you can have a huge impact and, 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 also build really big companies. And so I think it's sort of a fundamental challenge, but I think right now there's also a very interesting opportunity to go to both the big guys and and gals, I should say, of of the Fortune 500 that are uh, tech giants, but also go to some of the companies that, frankly, had to compete in what had otherwise been pretty monopolistic ad markets. Both Facebook and Google, in their respective lanes, own so much of the market that if you were an ad tech startup, oh, boy, that must have been so frustrating. And now it's, it's not easier to be an ad tech company competing with them, but you're like, I was competing with them and ad tech, like that's hard. That's a hard place to be. But what's great is there's just as software's eaten the world and it's, it's permeated so many of these institutions and industries that are so, so important to sort of the world becoming a better place. Um, I think those people are going to find incredible homes, both as founders and as sort of um individual contributors and managers at, at world-changing companies. So I think that's probably the biggest thing universally. Um, but I would say the second thing is um, it's there's never been more startup activity than there is now. That may change if we have a big financial correction, but um just for all the reasons that you know, access to capital, the tooling is more available. I'm sure you've had folks talk about these things in the past. But the result of that means that it's harder and harder to break through the noise, mm-hmm. both in capital markets, but also in reaching customers who are downloading fewer apps than they than they ever have. Or, you know, it used to be the case that nobody advertised in the subway. Now all start, you know, consumer startups, and in some cases also B2B companies, are advertising in the subway. So mm-hmm. all these channels which, you know, used to have attention that was open um, are are more crowded. And so I think... Um, just that, you know, you asked about outreach and how you get on somebody's radar. I think it's just important to think about how you break through the noise. And it's, it's, um, uh, some of that is visual and brand. Some of that is, um, the language that you use to describe how you're different. Some of that is, um, you know, trying to frankly figure out how to describe the traction and product market fit that you have so that that's clear, very succinctly to somebody that is looking for that. Mm -hmm. Um, so I don't know. Those are some things that I think that I think um, are both opportunities and, and challenges horizontally across all startups.
0: Right. Yeah. Um, what's the current state of the New York ecosystem here? What's the the current vibe that you're seeing?
1: So it's interesting. I think the vibe is um, very excited. I think the vibe is very. Um, uh, um, different though than it was a few years ago. Um, you had sort of consumer companies um, with very meteoric rises that um, struggled. And interestingly enough, you had a bunch of exits over the course of the last um, couple of years in the B2B space, which is not really what New York had been known for. Right. You know, on the IPO side, you companies like Mongo and um, Datarama um, in the M and A side, or Moat, um, which Oracle acquired for close to a billion dollars. So, I think one of the big shifts is much more B two B focused. You know, New York had always been thought of as sort of a consumer town. That's less of the case, mm-hmm. and I think that you know one of the really exciting things about about the city is there are more Fortune five hundred companies here than any other city in the in the country. And where that has an impact is in the types of businesses that are created. Because I think that as software eats the world, you wind up wanting to position yourself as a founder close to your customers. So, you know, healthcare businesses like Flatiron, um, you know, you see real estate businesses like Compass um, here, which are you know really becoming very formidable. Um, and so, uh, that is that's very exciting, but it's not as much about fashion, as much about ad tech, as much about, um, even FinTech, although those things are still very, very vibrant here. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's become much more diverse, um, in, in what's interesting.
0: Well, Spencer, thanks so much yeah, for taking the time, sharing all your great you know, background story, words of advice and yeah. everything that you're doing. So, uh, thanks, thanks for much having for the me. time. Cool.